We are in our last sermon or message on this series of what makes Edgewood Edgewood. Um, Matt and I have been talking. We, we hate, frankly, just frankly, Pastor Matt and I can't stand doing topical series. <laughs> especially because like the first sermon I preach in the series is why topical series is topical messages aren't great. <laughs> um, but sometimes they're necessary, right? But we really... I can't wait to get back into the book of Joshua, and Matt is really looking forward to next Sunday when he gets to get back into the book of Luke. But there are so many new people here, and um, we just knew it was essential that we take a second to take a few weeks, actually, to explain what are the high points of what we think makes Edgewood Edgewood. And we've talked about things like preaching and singing and unity and roles, and we even talked about church discipline. Uh, and, and last week, I preached from the book of Hebrews and argued that our call from Jesus is to follow him. And to follow him, I argued from the text, just means that we love him and do what he commands. And really, that's what discipleship is, is loving Jesus and doing what he tells us to do. And then that our call is to do that together. We help each other follow Jesus. We help each other love him. We help each other do what he tells us to do. That's what discipleship is. That's what about following Jesus is about. And we saw from the text that we do that. It says, don't give up meeting. Don't give up gathering together, but provoke, stir one another up to love him and do what he tells us, to love and good deeds, right? And the reason that it gave us was because we see the day drawing near. In other words, things are getting darker and we're going to need each other even more. And um, being an integral part of a local church looks like committing, and I'd even say covenanting, with each other to follow Jesus together. So you, part of you, come because you know it's a great place, part of you have said, I'm with you, and I'm committed to you. And that's really that commitment to follow Jesus together, to hold each other accountable, is really actually what church membership is all about. It's about a commitment to hold one another accountable and help each other do this thing called discipleship. So this morning's message, it's the last in the series, and in a sense, it's kind of a follow-up to last week's text. Because last week's text said, we're called to help stir each other to love and good works. Well, what does that really look like practically? And this text that we're going to look at this morning is, is really expanding on what does that practical daily life look like in the body at Edgewood Church. And it, ultimately, it's about doing ministry together. Ministry together. And really, ministry is just a fancy word for discipleship. It's for serving together. But I think if I say ministry work, if you've been going to church for a long time, you're, you're the first thing that pops in your head is probably that's what pastors do. Pastors do ministry. I do my thing and they do ministry. <laughs> well, I hope that's not what you think. But if that's what you think, I think you're going to see in today's text that ministry looks like all of us doing ministry together, serving together. Um, 
So before I jump into that text, I actually want to take some time and have us look at what does ministry for pastors look like. And then we'll look at ministry for all of us. So that first section I want us to just show you is the work of ministry for a pastor. The work of ministry for a pastor. Now, before I can actually tell you, help you see what does the Bible say a pastor's job is, a pastor's ministry is, we have to talk about titles. Because if you go to the New Testament, I think recently Pastor Matt pointed this out. If you go to the New Testament and you try to find verses that talk about pastors should do this, this, and this, you're not going to find but one verse because the word pastor is only used like that really that one or two times and it's even it's very rare so in order to see what does a pastor do you need to understand that the new testament uses three different words for what we commonly call a pastor one is an overseer or sometimes if you're using the king james it'll say bishop and that greek word is episkopos how many of you ever heard of an episcopal church that's where that word Episcopal comes from that Greek word episkopos, and really they get that gets at how they structure their leadership. But an overseer is one word you'll hear for pastors. You'll also read that that word pastor, or you'll see in the verb form to shepherd, and that literally poimenos is the word for shepherding. And then the third word that you'll see in the New Testament describing what pastors, what we commonly call pastors, is elder. How many of the churches you've come from, you had elders, like an elder board? Kind of what, well, not many, as many hands as I thought. There's a few. So elders, that word is presbyteros. What church kind of denomination do you hear there in that word? Presbyterian, right? So the Presbyterians kind of camped out on that word. All three are talking about the same person. In, every, in one instance, you actually will see all three words used in the same little sentence talking about the same person. So if I'm going to show you what does the New Testament show a pastor is supposed to do, we're going to be looking at any verses that show those three. And if we look at those commands to pastors, you're only going to find eight passages that tell a pastor what to do, which is really weird that there's only like eight verses Sections that tell, say pastors do this. Now, those are direct passages. We'll see real quickly here. Those are just like direct commands. Pastors do this or we see what they do. We could look beyond that and see patterns. Okay, well, Paul did this. Maybe we should do that. But those aren't direct commands. When it comes to looking for direct commands, what is a pastor, his ministry supposed to be? You're only going to see eight of them. The first one is in this Acts 20, 28. And there, the Apostle Paul was telling the Ephesian elders to guard themselves, to guard themselves and care for the blood-bought church. That's what that verse is. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So a pastor is to guard themselves, pay careful attention to yourselves, and to care for the flock. The next verse you could see that talks to pastors directly, same section. So I count this one in the same passage. Paul's still talking to the Ephesian elders on the beach as he's getting ready to leave. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, 
So now you hear, this is a command given to pastors. Paul's giving it right to these Ephesian pastors in Ephesus. Be alert. Remembering that for three years, I did not cease night or day to warn everyone with tears. So a pastor, secondly, is to be alert to false teaching and to warn or admonish, that's admonish, the flock against it. Third passage you'll find talking directly to pastors, is the first seven verses of 1 Timothy 3. And there Paul says to Timothy, he says, if anybody wants to be a pastor, he desires a very good thing. But here's what his character should be like. And it lists all kinds of things. I just took a a section of it. That the pastor has to be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, Able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover lover of money. And there's other things. All in that seven verses. So if you're wondering what should the character of a pastor look like, that would be one passage you'd go to. All right? Fourth thing where we see direct teaching in the New Testament about what a ministry of a pastor would be is chapter 5 of 1 Timothy. Paul tells Timothy about the pastors, the elders that Timothy was to establish in the local churches, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now that one's kind of an interesting verse, isn't it? Because it assumes that there are some elders that don't labor in preaching and teaching. But there we see they rule well, whatever that means, to lead but also there are some that preach and teach. So some focus on preaching and teaching. The fifth section of teaching in the New Testament on pastors, their work, you'll find in Titus, and it's very similar to the First Timothy 3 passage. It's a list of character traits. What should a pastor be like? And I pick some here that are not exactly the same as from the First Timothy 3. They have to be hospitable. That was in the last one. A lover of good. Self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. So again, they must have godly character. Sixth section. I'm just flying through these because this isn't the point of this morning's message. You'll see where I'm going here. Sixth passage in the New Testament on what a pastor's ministry is to look like. Hebrews 13, 17, the author of Hebrews is talking to the Hebrew Christians in Jerusalem. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For what do they do? They're keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So another thing you see pastors do, they have to give account for your soul, they keep watch. That's, that's a very heavy, weighty thing. Very heavy, weighty thing for me and Matt as we talk about that on a regular basis. Seventh passage is in James. This one's an interesting as well. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So another thing, it's clearly the Bible teaches Pastors pray for the sick. Okay? We pray for the sick. 
last passage that you could see specifically. Actually, there's two more here. First Peter 5, 1 through 13. Peter's talking to believers, shepherd the flock. That's the verb for pastor, pastor the flock that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. So what do we see there? And if I just summarize it really shortly, they shepherd, they pastor and give careful oversight. That's the passage where you actually see all three words used in the same context. The final passage I want to show you. So I'm just covering the entire New Testament about what it says directly to pastors to do. So what does it say in Ephesians 4? Now, Pat, Pastor Matt was, has been spent multiple weeks looking at this passage, right? Remember this? He gave apostles, evangelists, and then he says the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, if you're looking in your hand or handbook, God gave them pastors as gifts to the church for a special purpose. What's that special purpose right there? And Pastor Matt talked about this. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, the passage says the saints are to do what? The work of ministry. Wait a second. I thought ministry is what pastors do. We do. But our job as pastors is to equip you, train you, help you, make sure you have the tools to be able to do ministry yourself. That's very interesting. Because... I think a lot of times we think about churches. I come, sit and listen to preaching and sing, and then I go home. But we are called as believers, all of us together, to do the work of ministry. So here's the question. What is the work of ministry for you and I, for a saint? If you are in Christ, you are a saint. That's what actually you are called in the New Testament. So those churches that say there are saints that are different than the rest of us, that's hooey. (laughs) As Pastor Matt would go, (laughs) right? The New Testament, in the New Testament, you are called saints if you are in Christ. The saints who are in Christ. There's a little phrase in the New Testament you're going to find over and over. Says one another. Do this to one another. Do such and such to one another. Don't do this to one another. How many people remember the number I gave you for commands to the pastors? Eight, right? Essentially eight sections. Nine. Nine. Yeah, because I included the first two in the same paragraph and just said there's two different things that they do. Only eight passages talk specifically to pastors. But there are 35 Passages in the New Testament that talk to believers that say what the work of ministry is for you and I to do. Only eight for pastors and 35 for all of us to do. All of us to do together. And I say, if you look on your handout, I put 30, you don't have to expect to read them, they're on your handout there. (laughs) But I put them all up there on the slide just to kind of see, whoa, wow. That's what we're called to to do, because every single one of those 
have the same little Greek word attached to them in those verses. It's alelon, which means one another. Prefer one another. Be devoted to one another. Same mind to one another. Build up one another. Accept one another. 31 different things listed there that we're called to do to one another. That's the ministry of the saints right there. If you're wondering what your responsibility is as a Christian, here's a good start. And I put 31 like that because you could take this paper, fold it up, put it in your Bible, and every day for one day of the month, you could say, God, what do you want me to do for another believer today? We'll pick one of those on that list. Just number them and say, oh, today's the third. I'll do that. I'll have the same mind. And I'll have to look at that Romans 12, 16 and see what does that mean for me? So I want, though, to focus on just one of those today. Just one of those that will give us some commands. First Thessalonians 5 is where we're going to be turning today. Like, that's a long intro, Paul. You're really going to keep preaching? Bear with me. First <laughs> Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 14 is where we're going today. Just to look at one particular passage. And what I'm going to do is break down the seven commands that are in this verse. And I'm going to... Let's just read it together here first. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 14 says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. I'm going to just break down that into the seven commands that are in there. There's seven actual, do this, do this, do this, don't do this. And I'm calling it seven responsibilities for every member. And the reason I say every member is because in joining a specific local church, you're telling other members of that church that you're committed to walking together with them in this life of discipleship. And when you do that, you're saying, I want you to know I'm for you and I'm with you and will follow Jesus alongside with you. So it's not like when I say that these are seven responsibilities of every member, it's not like if you're not a member, you don't have to do these things because <laughs> really they're all to all Christians. But I'm putting the emphasis today on members that if we're members together of this local church, we're saying we are going to do these things for each other. I'm committed and I'm going to covenant with you to do these until God leads me someplace else. So let's dig into this. So the first paragraph, the first command you see here to each other is to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. The first responsibility you'll see is to know what your pastors do. To know what your pastors do. Now, the reason I say no is because that's literally the word right there. Where it says to respect, it actually in the Greek is a word for know, the verb for know. Now, there's multiple words in the Greek for knowing. And that's why I don't think, if you, you have to kind of look at a couple of translations to see 
what is the heart behind that one? So the King James says, know those who labor over you. But the ESV says respect, and the Christian Standard Version says give recognition to. I think if you capture all of those, you kind of get the sense of what it's talking about. Ministry, as I've, I've learned since uh, the early 2000s, is not slough off work. Um, I always thought it was a joke. People would joke that, well, pastors only work, you know, one day a week or maybe two if they have a Wednesday. I thought it was just a joke, but I was actually in a business meeting one year in Wisconsin. And a guy stood up and argued that they should decrease the pay of the pastors because they only work one or two days a week. (laughs) It took um, a lot in me to not respond according to the flesh. Ministry is hard work. And this verse is saying, helping you see that your pastors, and Brian's giving me that look, he's like, Tell me about it, brother. <laughs> right? It is, it, is, it is hard work when you're getting calls and texts, and we want those. Don't hear me say, don't reach out and talk to us. Um, but there's, there's so much that we're doing. Here he's saying that those who labor among you and are over you. So those who are over you, they, another way to translate that is they have charge over you. And work among you. So if you see a pastor's not doing anything, that should be a warning. You should say, hey, I thought the word of God says you're supposed to be laboring among us. Um, but they, their job there is to admonish, to warn you. So it's, you can kind of get hung up. Some people maybe get hung up on this over you, in charge of you. It's so much more than just the authority. This, this sense of over you is like to have um, caring and protecting Leading responsibility for those under your care. Remember that Hebrews passage that we give account for your soul? It's because we're called to pray for you, to talk with you, to ask you how it's going, to seek to help you. Because we're called to do that. And here's what this is saying is respect, know what we do. It's really weird for me to preach this way and say, here's what you're supposed to do to me. But it's me and Pastor Matt. The word here says, just know what we do. And I'd say, pray for us, right? Pray for us. The Apostle Paul says that you should know your pastors work hard for you. That we lead and our desire is to protect and care for you and warn you for your soul's sake. The second verb there, the second command is to esteem them very highly in love because they're super dudes. No, that's not what it says right there. It says because of their work. And I, that word, esteem, doesn't capture it as well, very well, again. It's, it's really synonymous with that respect word. They're two different words. Paul just uses another one, but then he, that very highly, it's like saying esteem them, love exceedingly abundantly in love. And in one sense, it's like saying, lovingly hold them in high regard. But here's what impacted my heart when I look at this. It's not because I'm a pastor. It's not because Pastor Matt's a pastor. It says because of their work. That's why. Not because of some position, but because of what God's called us to do. Love them for their work's sake. 
And you can see that it has nothing to do with me and the pastor and the office, but as much as the work of the gospel, because it's hard. Ministry over a church is very difficult. But pray for us as we follow Christ and seek to help you follow Christ together. So the third responsibility for every, oh, for your handout, love your pastors for their work. Love your pastors for their work. That third responsibility you'll see is to be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. And I have summarized that as get along with each other. (laughs) These are one another's in here. You're going to start to see those one another's I talked about. What is the ministry of the saints? It's to know what your pastors do, to love them for their work, and to get along with each other. I know that probably sounds like your mom saying, can't you all just get along? I'm so thankful that we don't have that kind of squabbling in our church. It helps that we're really small because as you get bigger, just more, right? But the be at peace among yourselves is about overlooking annoyances, putting aside your preferences in order To help each other be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And it means not quibbling, squabbling over things that we don't, because we just don't have time for that. Right? There's serious business at hand of sharing the gospel and loving our neighbors and loving our community. We don't have time for silliness. Right? So be at peace with each other is what the text there says. Now, that first, in your passage, if you look here, Paul's got, we ask you, brothers, he's talking to the people, the people in the church, he says, do those three things, and that's the first group. There at verse 14, then, he changes, he's still talking to the same people, and he says, we urge you. Now, that urge is like this strong word, sometimes translated exhort. He says, we urge you. And now it's not like just please do this or think about it. Do this. Do this. So the next one we see is to admonish the idol. Admonish the idol. The way I'd summarize that one is warn those abandoning their post. How many of you have had a little bit of military background? I know Donnie has and I have. Eva. Eva. Ava was in the military. I didn't know this. Jeff, did you know that? (laughs) When you are given a guard duty, that's your post. You stay at your post and you keep an eye out. You do your job, whatever you're assigned to do. You come along, the sergeant comes along and you're not there. It says you're at AWOL. You've abandoned your post. You may wonder, okay, how do you get that, Paul, from admonish the idol? Well, I don't know why I keep picking these passages that the, they're hard to translate. This is one of them. That word idol is only used here, right here in this verse in the New Testament. And so it's kind of difficult to figure out really what it means. So you have to look in other Greek literature that's written at the same time. And it's either translated idol or unruly. And every time in those other literature that they're using that word, it's a military context of people who have abandoned their post or way out of line. So, think about that. It's saying to warn 
those who are unruly or idle, who are not doing what God's called them to do. Now, I kind of lean towards the idle part, because if you read the letter of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, multiple times Paul's calling out those who are lazy and not working. So I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards that to what he means here by idle. But the point is that you and I, every single one of us, are called, when you see others just kind of taking it easy, sitting back and not doing all those 31 one another, and I should say all of them, but not pursuing Christ, just eh, abandoning their post. You and I are called to warn each other, to um, warn them, admonish them, and say, hey, look at what Jesus has done for us. Let's go. Let's go together. Okay, fifth responsibility. The fifth responsibility there is to encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. And I'd summarize this one as walk beside those about to give up. Walk beside those about to give up. You remember last week, it said, not abandoning, not forsaking one another, but encouraging each other. That's encouraging is the same word right there. Encourage. And if you remember, the, the definition of that is so beautiful. And I'll read it to you again. I read it last week. To encourage in this sense means to come close to someone's side and speak in a friendly manner as rousing someone's will about something that ought to be done. That's what encouraging means there. But what's interesting is if you look, encourage the faint-hearted. The King James translated that as feeble-minded, which seems really insulting today, right? That's not what it's talking about. The faint-hearted are those that are about to give up. Picture someone who's got nothing left to give. They feel like they're at their end of their resources. That's what faint-hearted means. Those are that are like, I've got nothing left in me. I'm going to need somebody to just pretty much carry me. In fact, when I was thinking about that, studying what that word meant, I was picturing Lord of the Rings. And I apologize if you're not a Lord of the Rings nerd like me, but in the Lord of the Rings, you've got these little people called hobbits. And Frodo is, one, is the main hobbit who has a journey to take this ring to this destination, and it's an unthinkably, unimaginably hard journey. And there are points where he's about to give up. He has nothing left in him. And there's this other, other hobbit named Samwise Gamgee. And Samwise, if you watch the movies, it's beautiful because you can actually see him. And here's what the line says from the book, that Frodo is about to give up. They're at the very end of the journey. They can see where they need to be to put this ring into the fires of Mount Doom. And, and Frodo's about lost it. He's like, I can't get up there. I can't. And Samwise says to Frodo, come, Mr. Frodo, he cried. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you and it as well. So up you get. Come on, Mr. Frodo, dear. Sam will give you a ride. Just tell him where to go and he'll go. That's the picture. When, God, when Paul says, encourage the faint-hearted, it's to come alongside and you may have to carry them. And sometimes, how many of you know what that feels like? Maybe both sides, right? 
especially your spouses. If you've been married, sometimes there's times and you're just like, the other person can't do it. And you're like, let's go. We'll do this together. But, does, you know, you know that when you've at, you're at the end of your resources, that's what encourage the faint hearted is. And we're all called to do that together. We're all called to do that together. Here's my question for you, though. Do you know who the faint hearted are in this church? Who are they? Are you praying for them? Are you coming to their side, like that definition of that word? Are you coming to their side and listening and encouraging them, saying, let's go together? We're called to walk beside each other, walk beside those that are about to give up in following Jesus. But we're also called in this next one to help the weak. To help the weak. Um, And I, for your handout, support the weaker ones. Support the weaker ones. Now that verb there uh, means to really be devoted to in a kind of a caring kind of way. And weak here doesn't necessarily mean physical weakness. It's really thinking about spiritual weakness. And this can refer to younger believers in the faith. If you think about who are the youngest believers or even not even believers yet in this congregation, they're back there in that nursery, aren't they? They're the little ones. Next week in our business meeting, we're going to be talking about a new child protection policy that we need to put in place. And I'll give arguments for why we have to next week. But um, this phrase right here is just one of the myriad of biblical reasons why we need to do that, to think about protecting and supporting the weaker ones. But that's just one aspect here. I think what Paul has in mind primarily are kind of the people like he talks about in Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians, that are weak spiritually. They're weak in conquering sin. They have a whatever it is that they're struggling with, and maybe their conscience is super sensitive. These are the weaker brothers, I think, that Paul's referring to here. So why, though, would he tell us to support those weaker ones. You know, in this world, you'd think, you know, the secular world would say it's a doggy dog world. Only the strongest will survive. That's not the economy of the church. The economy of the church is we put aside our desires and come alongside the weak ones and encourage them and help them, support them. I keep thinking of, of some in our congregation who have struggled with addiction, and they, they fall off the wagon. And we get frustrated ourselves, like, oh, man, can't they get this together? And then we're like, no, we're called to support the weaker ones, so we keep coming back, and we keep coming back. But why? Why would we do that? Because you and I have been loved. We've been loved, and because we've been loved, we want to help love others, to help others follow uh, Christ even in their own weaknesses, to come alongside them, to encourage them, not in some kind of, I've got it all figured out way, right? But in a way that is saying, like Sam Wise, let's do this together. And this is hard, especially when they're high maintenance people. 
You know who I'm talking about in your life. Maybe you're the high-maintenance person. <laughs> Maybe I am. It's easy for us, those that are constantly following, falling and need help all the time, it's easy for us to lose our patience with them, isn't it? I think that's why the Apostle Paul knows that. Because look at the next command to us. Be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. And here's what I would say. How in the world do you do that? The way you do that, it says be patient always. And the way you can do that is by remembering that you owe an unpayable sum. You're asking, okay, how these people in my life, I can't be patient with them. The way you can be patient with them is you have to go back and remember what you owe. What I'm referring back to is this, par- this parable, Matthew 18, chapter 23 through 35. Remember this story of the man who owed 10,000 talents? He owed 10,000 talents to the king. And his, the king forgave his debt. And then that man who had 10,000 talents of debt eliminated by the king, just written off, goes out and throttles a man who owed him a hundred denarii. Now those terms don't really mean much to us, so let me help you connect that with modern-day money. A denarii was what you would get paid, one coin, for a day's wage. So 365 denarii would be like a year's worth of work. But it took lots and lots of denarii to make even one talent. 10,000 talents is equivalent to $15 billion in today's money. $15 billion, one person owed the king, and the king goes, I'll forgive that debt. And this guy goes out, and the man owed him the equivalent of $70. Fifteen billion dollars you were owed, you owed the king. And the king says it's forgiven. And then you have the audacity for this guy who offended you over $70 to choke him. And that parable is showing, and it's not even meant to be exact math. The point is unfathomable sums which you owe. God, because of your transgression, your sin against him, it's an infinite debt you could never pay. If that's been forgiven for you, you can go and be patient with the weaker ones, right? The ones that are hard to be patient with. I have to remember that all the time as a, as a, a parent, I know, especially actually with, mainly with the pets. <laughs> I lose my patience, but I've got to think with my children, I have to be patient because I have been forgiven a infinite debt. You will never be able to be patient with others if you think somehow you have a right to demand payment from your brother or sister for their wrongs against you. But if you remember the great unpayable sum that you've been forgiven, then you can be patient with one another. So in this text we've seen... I didn't have my numbers right, I think. 
because that last one was supposed to start at five, right? It's all right. We've seen seven responsibilities that all of us are, are called to in a church. And that doesn't exclude the pastors. All of us are called to do those seven things for one another. But I want to just, just quickly just say, okay, well, why would, what are four reasons why we might not do these things? Why have I seen, where have we seen why people don't do these? Why do these get neglected? I think the first reason why people might neglect those is that they think it's the pastor's job to do those things. Well, if you look at those first three, you're like, well, they're all directed to the pastor. Maybe we just missed those and ignored them. Ask yourself, am I expecting my pastor to be the one to confront so-and-so? Are you assuming someone else has followed up with those visitors who you haven't seen for a couple of weeks? Are you wondering where so-and-so is? Don't just start asking around. Look up their number and call them, right? I think another reason we, don't, we might neglect those responsibilities is that we don't see it modeled well. I think we've seen that in bigger churches and even really small churches. Um, when I was at our church in Minnesota, there was a guy whose whole ministry was thinking about the people on the fringes. And he was such a model to me of what does it look like to go and do these, these commands when I look at my own life, I see like my lack of hospitality to um, and, and not modeling evangelism. You don't, if you don't see it modeled well, how could I expect you to not do, to do it? You have, I think that's one reason we don't see it. Uh, we, don't, we might neglect these. I think the third reason why we might neglect these is that we don't know each other. We don't know each other well. How in the world can you appreciate the work of your pastors if you don't know him and what he's doing. How can you admonish the unruly if you don't know who's unruly or idle? How can you encourage the faint-hearted if we don't know who's faint-hearted? You tracking with me? If there isn't anything in this church that someone does that annoys you, then you probably don't know each other well enough. Think about that. If there's, if there's no one in this church that annoys you, then you probably don't know each other very well. <laughs> Right? So, I mean, Todd and I know each other. We, we start to annoy each other. Even those musicians, it's just one of those things. But we, we have to get to know each other. And that's where the patience comes in, right? So fourth reason why I think we may neglect these responsibilities is I think you may get discouraged and feel like, I don't feel like I'm adequate for this task. That's, these things you're asking me to do in this text feel like you have to be super spiritual. And here's what I just give you two verses that I'm sure... Our friend Bob here has memorized. 2 Peter 1.3 tells you that you have what you need. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through our knowledge of him who's called us by his own glory and excellence. All things have been given to you by his divine power to do everything he calls you to do. Everything you need for life and godliness he's given you to do. So don't feel inadequate. Remember that he has given you his spirit. Second verse, Romans 15, 14. Paul specifically says you've got what it takes to do these commands. He says, I myself, Paul is talking, am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. 
competent to be able to do the one another's. So, when you think about the fact that God has anointed you, has, has um, joined you, united you to Christ, he's also given you his spirit. He's given you all the power then to be able to do all those responsibilities that we see in this passage. God's mission in our lives is for us to follow Jesus together. And that was just one example of what that looks like. And I think when we do these things, if we look at these passages in like the, the one in Hebrews last week and this one, if we really take time to focus on those, I think our eyes are going to be go from here on myself to Christ and others. And when that happens, we are doing exactly what God's called us to do. And you're going to see continued growth. I'm thankful that I see that in this congregation and like I said last week, I'd say the same thing that Paul tells the Thessalonians. He says, you're doing this. Keep doing it and do it more. I want to encourage you to keep following Christ together. And look at that list of 31s. Take time each day. What does God want me to do today? Lay it out right there for you. It doesn't have to be mysterious. So let's, let's pray. And then we're going to just take some time to celebrate the Lord's table together. God, I... Praise you for the fact that you've given us your spirit. You've given us all the power we need to be able to do what you've called us to do. To love you and to follow you. I praise you for this body you've brought together in such a unique way. How you've gifted us. I pray that you would help us. Help us to keep the mission in front of us. The mission of your glory, your kingdom and changing us into your image so that we look more and more like you for your glory so others would see that and for our own joy. Praise you for your grace and patience with us. In Jesus' name, amen.